0: Anthony Robustelli's path to music started at a very early age. His father was the leader of a big band, and music was always prominent with a variety of instruments always at his fingertips. Anthony's career includes the role of musical director for Gloria Gaynor, a touring stint with Michael Franti and Spearhead, along with several solo projects under his belt. It's no secret that Anthony is an ardent fan of Steely Dan. In fact, his most recent projects center around the Dan, including his new book titled Steely Dan FAQ, which contains incredibly detailed information about all aspects of the band. He has also released a new album titled The Steely Dan Sessions, interpretations of unrealized classics that die-hard Steely Dan fans will truly appreciate as Anthony breathes life into lost classics from Fagan and Becker. Discuss these projects and more is none other than Anthony Robostelli. Hey, Anthony, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Rick. great, thanks for having me. Uh, well, first off, I want to mention that uh, normally I do these shows with Eddie Cabello, my co-host, but he couldn't be here today. He's got a conflict, and uh, I'm going to fly solo on this one. So, um, hope you can bear with me today, Anthony. Just, just me.
1: <laughs> no problem at all. <laughs> all
0: right. Well, you know, I've been learning about more and more about you know you over the past couple of years, and and today our goal is to learn even more. And and one thing we do know is, you know, and we'll talk more about this later, but it's it's your love for Steely Dan. But your resume goes, you know, far beyond, you know, your your recent Steely Dan related projects which again we'll talk about those in a little bit. So the first thing I want to do and what we like to do a lot of times with guests is it, let's let's go way back and let's okay. it, tell us about your your earliest memories of music and how it initially, you know, left its mark on you. I mean, was there was there music happening, you know, from from other family members or was, you know, was there a specific song or album that grabbed you? Tell me about, you know, what really pulled you into music.
1: Well, my father uh had had a big band in the 40s when he was in his 20s. And he actually took vocal lessons from the same uh, vocal teacher that Tony Bennett had. And at the time, it was very funny because his teacher had told my father, "Oh, that Benedetto kid—he's never going to make it anywhere. He doesn't <laughs> sing properly." And it, it was just very funny. But my dad had a big band and was always into music. He ended up doing other things later on in life, um, you know, to pay the bills. But he always there was always music, and through his yeah. whole life, as long as I remember, he always sang through the summer every Saturday night at a country club in New Rochelle, New York. He was the MC. He, you know, did songs. He introduced the other acts that were going to be, you know, part of the weekend. So there was always music around and he played organ, he played some saxophone. He was pretty much, you know, Taught himself, but was able to play anything that was around the house. So, from a really young age, there was always music playing, whether it was, you know, Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett or John Coltrane, Miles Davis. He was definitely into big band stuff, Glenn Miller, um, and started taking me to concerts at a really, really young age. So, I was seeing Ahmad Jamal, you know, when I was six years old. (laughs) And my brother, who's seven years older than me, also played. As did my sister. Um, so everybody played an instrument, and I just wanted to as well. So when I was five years old, I started taking organ lessons, and um, just really got into it. Uh, yeah. Started playing trumpet as well, some guitar, drums, you know, whatever was around. Uh, keyboards definitely was my primary instrument, right. but just anything I get my hands on. And luckily, we had a lot of. Instruments around the house, so yeah. from a very young age, it was just music, music, music. And from the age of five, when I first discovered the Beatles through a few records my brother had had, I was completely obsessed. You know, by the time I was seven, I had all their records, and that's when I started listening to other stuff um, that my older brother was listening to: Tower Power, Chicago. Yeah, uh, you know, fell into Stevie Wonder, mm-hmm. Steely Dan, of course, yeah. and all of that. You know, at a pretty young age, by the time I was in third grade. I had a pretty wide (laughs) genre, you know, a lot of genres of music that I dug Mm -hmm. and stuff that a lot of seven-year-olds probably weren't listening to.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, like you said a second ago, pianos and keys, you know, know, that's your main instrument. But, you know, you're a self-described, like you said, multi-instrumentalist. Tell us about these other instruments that you're well-versed in, you know, that also led to your path— uh, to music and also your path to music education. Put that all together for us. You know, how did you go from, you know, uh, fiddling around with all the instruments that were laying around in your dad's house to to how you actually educated yourself or where your education happened to get you into this path of music?
1: Cool. Well, I started taking, uh, you know, piano lessons, organ lessons really when I was five. And around, uh, I guess it was third grade, I started taking trumpet lessons in school. And I remember one summer I went to a music camp when I was probably around nine or so. Uh-huh. And part of what you did there was you—they wanted you to be somewhat well versed in all the instruments. So yeah. I took drum lessons, I took guitar lessons, um, and that sort of just got me going. Where you know after that, I never took a guitar lesson again. I never took a drum lesson, but it made me inquisitive and made me want to play those instruments better. Yeah. So I really just was self-taught with everything, but. Piano and trumpet. And honestly, you know, once I started playing trumpet, my focus lesson wise was really trumpet lessons. And then I continued with keyboards and piano after my initial few years of lessons and really just taught myself until. I went to college okay. and uh, went to college. To, I went to NYU okay. for jazz performance. Uh, I initially went there as a music tech major because I was really into recording. I had had a four track in high school and had gotten really into overdubbing and doing all this. So I thought, mm-hmm. you know, this would be a great way to put together my love of playing, my love of recording, my love of writing. But I found after the first year that. It was just a lot of physics, a lot of yeah, math, right. and not nearly as much playing. And I was, you know, playing a lot on my own and with people, and recording on my Ford track and doing all of that, but within the. You know confines of NYU. Everything I was doing was based going down that track of being a recording engineer. I see, uh, which is very funny because years later I ended up doing just that when I opened my own studio. But I decided to switch paths because I wanted to play more and went for jazz performance. And then after that went continued at NYU, getting a master's in education with the idea of you know, getting a teaching gig so I could teach, play. Um, But honestly, it's a lot of hard work. By the time I finished my master's, I decided, you know what, right now I'm just going to stick with teaching private lessons. I'm not going to teach within a school right now. And then, you know, just started playing more gigs, started a recording studio in Brooklyn, and other things just sort of took over.
0: Right, right. You, you sparked a memory for me when you talked about that path you were headed down in, in, at NYU with physics and math and all of that, and that road to becoming a recording engineer. I stu- I also studied engineering, and I remember when I was going to go through the—I when I, I was actually studying telecommunications, and then when I— uh, uh, found out that the school had a music engineering technology program. I went and talked to the professor there and he told me the requirements for their curriculum. And it required you know, junior-level status in music performance plus a, uh, you know, a, a minor in physics. And I thought, physics? <laughs> exactly. What do I need that for? But, yeah, I mean, it certainly helps, but yeah, that, you just when you mentioned that, it, it sparked an old memory. But, hey, uh, tell us about your start in music, I mean, professionally speaking. I mean, uh, what was your first gig as a musician? Wow,
1: I guess you know what my first gigs were probably I would say like early in high school. Um you know, I was trying to put a band together probably from you know the time I was 8 or 9 years old, but you know, by that time I had been playing for about 4 years so I could yeah. play. I was playing Chicago songs and right. playing Beatles stuff on the piano and I was trying to get other musicians together but nobody played yet really you know they played some band instruments but it was impossible to find anybody until you know i guess when i was in about seventh grade i found a drummer who was a year younger than me had just started playing had a pearl kit loved a lot of the same music i loved and, you know, could play. He could play some beats. And right. I was like, all right, this is great. Let's start a band. So I started a band with him. And then, you know, we pulled in a few friends and told him, okay, you're going to play bass. You're going to play guitar. Um, And by the time, you know, we were like 14, we had a real band. So we played gigs during high school. And, um, you know, when I went away to college, I still did some gigs, but I spent a lot more time in college um, recording. And that, yeah. you know, took over for a few years. Um, But when I graduated from nyu i ended up uh moving to brooklyn and i was in a band that we did some you know touring in europe and did some touring around the u.s and that was really the start and through that just started meeting people on the new york scene and you know playing with other artists and starting a recording studio and producing people so then that just led me to on uh, to better and better gigs
0: yeah yeah. Well, you know, aside from from your own work, you know, you've you've supported um, quite a few other musicians and, uh, you know, you've worked with Gloria Gaynor as her uh, musical director. And, you know, you've also worked with uh, Bo Diddley and uh, Michael Franti and Spearhead and, and some others. And I want to start with Gloria be, and, and tell us tell us, first of all, how you connected with her and how long uh, were you her musical director? And, and I guess most importantly, what did you learn from her?
1: Well, you know what? I knew uh, one of her background vocalists, who had been with her for quite a few years, uh-huh. gave me a call and said that she had mentioned to her, you know, because she lives in New Jersey, she was using bands, you know, all over the country. She had a band right. based in Atlanta. When she would go to Europe, she'd have a band there. Sure. And the singer had said to her, "Listen, you live in New Jersey. You should have a New York band." And she called me and said, "Hey, do you want to do this? Do you want to be the musical director?" Um, and I "I was yeah, really excited." So. You know, put we put the band together. She had a lot of people that she thought would work that we both knew. Um, so you know, we went in, we auditioned for her. Basically, she really liked the way the band sounded, and we ended up you know doing it for about a year and a half with that band, and did a lot of traveling. Went to South America, went to Africa, uh, did a lot of dates in the U.S. Um, and it, you know, she, it it was nice playing with that band because. You know, we really like gave a bottom, a funk to the music and, you know, tried to modernize it a little bit while yeah. still keeping true to the roots of, you know, the disco and R&B uh, that, you know, her her world where she came from. Uh, but, you know, she was very professional. She always came in and just, you know, nailed the vocals. and They always sounded good. The backing <laughs> vocalists were always tight with her. And um, yeah. it was a lot of fun. And it was a lot of fun playing with that band, too, because the guys were really great.
0: That's cool. So tell me about uh Michael Franti and Spearhead. How how were you involved with them?
1: That was, you know what, I I had played with uh the R&B singer Kelly Price for a couple of years and I met um through her, her tour manager, was a great guy that was the tour manager for Michael Franti and Spearhead. Uh-huh. And you know, we were sitting together one night having a drink and um he told me that and I was like, "Oh, I've I've been a really big fan. I've really liked the last few albums and um You know, and then we left it at that, and then probably maybe a year later, he gave me a call and said, listen, the keyboard player's leaving, and they need someone, (laughs) and I recommended you, and uh, he said, fly out to San Francisco and meet Michael and the MD Carl, and you know, I think they really dig the way you play and sing and everything. So I went out there and at the time, you know, their band has always been San Francisco based. They never really got anybody from outside of San Francisco because even though they traveled all over the world, they were based in San Francisco. So it was sort of odd for a New Yorker to come in. And, you know, I sat down with Michael and Carl and played a bunch of things on the Fender Roads and sang a little bit and you know, they're just like on the spot, just like wow, that sounded great. You want to do this? And <laughs> I learned basically like a hundred songs in a week, oh and then we God. were on the road the next week for like four months. Wow! And it is was that really the, just a jump it, in there situation?
0: So was that the extent of the gig with them? You, you just did like no, a- no. Then I
1: ended up playing with them. You know, over the course of a few years uh, with them. I mean, it was constant touring, which yeah. was a little t- tough because it's you know when I played with them at the time, we were probably on the road eight to nine months out of the year. Okay. So, you yeah, I know, I, yeah,
0: that's a lot. I knew about their tour schedule. I mean, I knew that they were... They I've never had a chance to see them perform live. I'd love to. And, and I, I I would imagine that had to be a really fun gig.
1: It, it was. You know, they were long, <laughs> though, because he was known for... I mean, we would... Most of our gigs would be about three hours long. Yeah, it was yeah. like Bruce Springsteen-style yeah. length. Uh, so there was no coming in. Unless, you know, when we did festivals, they were shorter. But, you know, any gigs that were ours... You know, one of my my best memories of uh, playing with uh, Spearhead was we were in New Orleans uh, during Jazz Fest and we played at Tipitina's and our set started at four in the morning and we played until about nine (laughs) and nobody left. The place was packed at nine o'clock in the morning. It was was definitely the craziest gig I've ever played, but (laughs) probably one of the most fun too.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it.
1: You know, I, I was checking out
0: your bio on your website, and I learned some stuff that I didn't realize. And you know, you, you mentioned on there that you shared the stage with some some pretty big acts, such as Paul McCartney and Santana, Buddy Guy, you know, Black Eyed Peas, and some others. So, I, I guess say in the case of, of Paul McCartney, I know you're a huge Beatles fan. T- tell us how you actually shared the stage with him, and 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 you know, what what happened there. What what was it an opening gig, or did you play with him, or tell me about that.
1: It was an opening gig. It was when I was with Spearhead. We played uh, Uh, Glastonbury, okay, and we played on the main stage. And it was us, uh, Ben Harper, Black Eyed Peas, and McCartney. I see. Um, So that was like that was the those are the acts for that evening. So it it was pretty incredible, and you know to be able to hang out with all the other acts and (laughs) and see what they were doing and be able to be really close and watch stuff from on stage. But the funny thing was the whole band was still on stage. Our whole band was still on stage right before McCartney came on. And McCartney... Uh, his entourage came and cleared the entire stage but luckily um, myself and uh, the guitar tech went right into the front where the photographers were uh, and I was standing next to his wife at the time and uh, we actually were so close to the stage we had to move behind the pyrotechnics for live and let die so oh wow. uh, it was pretty cool it was <laughs> the other guys in the band met him backstage yeah. and we had the choice of you know we could stay backstage meet him when he comes off say hi or be right in the front and catch an amazing Amazing show and i actually picked you know the the latter because I, I i had seen him a number of times before but to see him right there yeah. was pretty incredible
0: yeah i think i would have done the same thing it would be cool to shake his hand and say hello to him but you know I I, I would agree with you it'd be really cool to see him up close yeah like the
1: mu- it's always been about the music for yeah, me you know meeting yeah. someone is great you know it's better if if eventually you have some kind of relationship with a musician where you actually are sitting and talking but just the handshake hello yeah. it's just never been my kind of thing for anybody I would much rather be there for two and a half hours you know ten feet from right. you know that Hofner bass and see that <laughs> you know exactly well, you know, speaking of Paul, that I, 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 when I
0: first learned about you, Anthony, I, I, I knew you were a big a Steely Dan fan. I, I, I get that. But what I didn't know, and what I've learned, is that you know, you're, the Beatles are right there at the top of the heap for you. And and you published a book titled, "I Want to Tell You," where you break down early Beatles songs track by track and explain how those songs came to be and how they left such an indelible mark, you know, on the world of music. So. In your analysis, was there a common thread, or, or say, a musical DNA with these early Beatles songs that you know catapulted the band to such lofty uh, historic
1: heights? Well, I would say, you know, something that I found a lot of people um, always say that the early Beatles. Songs were simplistic, not as you know complex as some of their later uh-huh. endeavors. And what I found, and what I always knew, you know, in my heart, and knew just from playing the songs, but really came to know once you're sitting there and analyzing it with a completely different way. Um, you know, I really listened to these songs differently than I had ever yeah. heard them before to yeah. try to get to the crux of you know what's important about this music. Mm-hmm. And I found that something that they always did. Um, which was different in comparison to a lot of other pop and rock acts at the time is you know their harmonic structure the way yes. in pretty much every song they ever wrote from beginning to end would have chords within the song that weren't within the key um so it was that like aha moment where you're listening to a song and your ear just goes whoa and even if it's as simple as just having an e major chord in a in a song that's in c that's something that really it pulls your ear in a certain way that a lot of music at the time didn't do. It was just a lot of 145 blues stuff and, you know, just just using that 1625 chord progression of the early 50s doo wop things, which, you know, they took advantage of those things, but they always there was always a spin. There was always mm-hmm. a twist to it. And even Bob Dylan said, oh man, those chords, it's those those chords. <laughs> right. And he knew, he even said when he first heard, I want to hold your hand, even though it was a pop song, he knew there was something there that was so unique and different than everything else that was going on yeah. at the time. Mm-hmm. And you know what that thing was, was the way that they used melody against these chord changes that honestly, weren't supposed to be in the song. If you were just going for a strictly diatonic song, you wouldn't have these other chords. And it was something that they did, you know, from the beginning. And and I think a big part of that comes from the fact that rock and roll, to them, you know, there was no rock and roll until they were, you know, older. They, they had, depending on which Beatle you're talking about with the varying ages, yeah. they had a good 12, 13 years of listening to music that had nothing to do with rock and roll. So yeah. they took... And upon themselves, the Cole Porter songs, the Gershwin stuff, they knew all that stuff because that's what was recorded and that was was played right. because there was no rock and roll. And what they did was, you know, McCart- Lennon and McCartney wanted initially when they first met each other, they were like, we're going to be songwriters. We'll write a musical. We'll write songs for other people. Like they thought that that was a really important thing. You know, they slagged off on it for a few years when they were in Hamburg and hardly wrote anything at all. Uh-huh. But then when they started doing it again seriously, once they got a record deal, That was a really important thing to them. And they drew on so many different genres, whereas a lot of rock and roll artists of the time, you know, Rolling Stones a good example, you know, they were going for a blues thing. They that's all they wanted to do, especially the Brian Jones era Rolling Stones. They weren't stretching into other territories because that's not what they were about. They were a yeah. blues band. The Yardbirds, right. and quit because they thought you thought they were going too poppy. The Beatles always wanted to draw on different influences and not just be a band that just played Chuck Berry songs. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: something I've I always noticed in those early Beatles songs was was uh, that relationship in the rhythm section between Paul and Ringo and there was something special about what those two were doing together and I, I think that a lot of times people overanalyze Ringo's playing and say he wasn't, you know, as, as, as stellar a stellar drummer but when you, when you really listen, if you really break down and, and really pay attention to what they're doing in the rhythm section, there's something special going on there.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, I I've, I've, Ringo's always been one of my favorite drummers. There's something yeah. that you hear him play; he doesn't sound like anybody else. And it took a long time, you know, for people to realize that. And it wasn't until drummers that are considered technically superior right. started saying how much they love Ringo yep. and, and what a unique drummer it is, he is, and um, something that he always did—he always played for the song. He wasn't a showy drummer, even though, I mean. He could play some stuff. There are drum fills. You listen to Long Tall Sally. There's some drumming going on there. That's not such an easy thing to do. And um, I think people also realize it was funny when the Beatles rock band came out. Um, I remember reading an article that a lot of drummers couldn't get, you know, the 100% score or playing the drums on I Am the Walrus and some of the other songs <laughs> because it was so unorthodox. And yeah. a lot of the things he did as a drummer, you wouldn't expect someone to do. Right. Um, so it's not the thing you would go for. It was just the way he played. And it became to the point where producers would often say someone would come in and go, all right, play like Ringo, you know? <laughs> right. That's true. And
0: and he used, he used space really well. I mean, that's I think, one of the things that maybe added to the the unorthodoxy of that is that he played he used space really well and and you know that's i think that goes sort of
1: you know unnoticed at times um, it does with a lot of musicians a lot of times not playing is as important as playing yeah, yeah. and a lot of people don't understand that. Miles Davis always talked about the space and how that is such an important part of the music yep. when nothing's going on yep. you know if, if someone's constantly playing it starts to nothing you know seems important
0: mm-hmm. Hey, uh, just real quick, um, sticking on the topic of Beatles in you know, another Beatles oriented project of, that you uh, deal with is, a tr- is something called the multi-track meltdown and explain this project.
1: I've been doing a podcast uh, for a couple years. I have at this point, you know, a little over 80 episodes. And what I do with it is I strip down mixes of Beatles songs, uh, solo recordings, some live stuff. And I've gone on to do it with other bands, too, that are Beatles related. I've done a couple shows on Steely Dan. I've done things about, you know, when... Artists have passed away recently. I did a Tom Petty show. I did a Bowie show. Um, and what it is, is really taking the tracks and stripping it so that maybe I'll just play the drums and bass for the first verse and then bring a guitar in and just solo the vocals. I've done fully like acapella shows just listening to the vocals. And I've always really been into that. As a kid, I always loved the idea of you know when you could plug the headphones in a little bit and just get one channel but it was playing in both ears or the out of phase stuff when you can make your speakers go out of phase and hear something different as a kid i always loved that and that was a cool thing about early beatles records um when the vocals would be on one side and the music would be on the other is you could just listen to one side and it's like being in the recording studio Mm -hmm. and you know since i do have a recording studio i've been able to you know do some of these things myself with different programs but also from myriad sources bootlegs rock band stems um all the different things that have come out in surround sound depending on you know how good the surround sound mixes i yeah. found that you know a lot of the, a lot of great stuff uh, the gaucho surround sound and the Fagin stuff that came out in surround sound yeah. that you could really isolate things and just hear horn sections. And so, you know, it started with the Beatles and the majority of the show is Beatles, but I've definitely slipped in other bands that I really like because I have such a big collection of those kind of stems and multi-tracks that I just like to share that kind of thing, talk about the music a little bit. And a lot of times you hear things that you never heard before when you're hearing the whole mix, you know, when you're just listening to the drums and the bass, you're definitely going to hear something different than when you hear everything else on top of it. I got to ask, where are you coming up with these stems? Oh, all different places. I just am look- I'm constantly looking for them. Um, you know, as I said, a lot of stuff has been mixed in surround sound. So when you decode the surround sound mixes, a lot of times, you know, you get your center channel, which ends up just being a vocal or maybe a vocal and a kick drum. And then depending on how whoever the engineer was that mixed it. You know, I know that with Gaucho, it's it's awesome that for like Babylon system, Sisters, the back channel is just the horns. So when right. I did a Steely Dan show, I played just, you know, the horns of Babylon Sisters, which just sounds cool as hell. Well, you know
0: what, plug plug your show because I, 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 I'm sure our listeners would love to hear this. Okay, well you
1: could hear it. It's on um Fab Four Radio Monday to Friday at eleven o'clock PM Eastern Standard Time. And it's on Beatles Arama on Sunday nights at eight o'clock Eastern Standard Time. It was a podcast and it was up on SoundCloud for the past year, but uh, Universal came after me for copyright infringement and took it down, but it is going to be back up pretty soon on Podbean. Okay. So I'm going to, once everything's back up and running, I'm going to put out an announcement because I had a lot of people that just, you know, as you know, people just want to stream and listen when they want and not be on a you know, a schedule where they have to listen to things. But right now, Monday to Friday, and on Sunday, you could hear it. And pretty soon, it'll be a backup as a podcast. Hey, let's let's talk Steely Dan. And I want to, you know, I, I know you're a huge fan. And and
0: but their music has obviously played a, a role into your own musical sensibilities. And and back in 2001, you released what I believe was I think it was your debut solo album titled Comfort is So Rare. Is that Was that your debut?
1: That was, yeah, as a solo artist, yeah. I had done a few with bands before that, but that was my first one uh, as a solo
0: artist. Yeah, and that's eight tracks of a mixture of, you know, it's, it's it has some soul, R&B, funk, you know, a little hip-hop, some rock at times, and, but the jazz is at the heart of it all, and... You know, I I hear like a a Steely vibe that's present throughout and we'll learn over the next decade and a half that all of your releases are laced with a little bit of Fagin and Becker. But what was it that got you hooked on Steely Dan and and was there a particular song or album or or something that gave you that spark?
1: It was definitely Asia. I remember, you know, when Asia came out, I was eight, um, seven seven or eight. And uh, when Asia came out, My brother had it, and I just remember at the first listen, just – being floored (laughs) because I had been listening to a lot of jazz, a lot of big band stuff through my dad and then a lot of Beatles. And that seemed like, wow, this band is putting together all the stuff I love about jazz and Mm -hmm. everything that I love about rock Mm -hmm. and putting it together into one place. And I listened to that record constantly. I I couldn't get enough. (laughs) And that was the beginning uh, for me. And then, you know, I, I picked up the Nightfly When that came out, I started, filling in my collection with other albums then when CDs came out I remember I worked at a C- one of the first CD stores in Westchester um and I bought everything they had by Steely Dan on <laughs> CD cuz I was like all right now this yep. new fidelity and um and then it just went on from there and it just always influenced me as a songwriter cuz I, I've just always I've always been into harmony too. I I I get bored with just typical chord changes and I I've always loved the fact that Steely Ann was able to, you know, put together R and B and rock with a sophistication yep. and a jazz flavor without it really being jazz. Yep. And that's what Always just led me back to that. It just became the way I write. Not consciously thinking of Steely Dan. I think conscious, subconsciously thinking the way that they thought. Just loving R and B and funk and soul, but really liking chord changes and you know interesting little twists and turns and key changes and things like that, just to keep myself amused. Mm -hmm.
0: You and I are, I think, the same age because I think I was like eight (laughs) or nine years old when that came out, and I remember. I remember getting a hold of that album somehow and listening to it. You know, I, I would love to explore through anybody's records and just put them on and just listen to see what was there. And I remember when I heard Asia, it just had a profound effect on me, and it kind of blew me away, and it kind of conf- in a confusing way because I was so used to hearing just you know straightforward pop and stuff. I don't think I'd really gotten into jazz all that much, but but man, when Asia came, when when I heard Asia, obviously I knew Peg because that was all over the radio, but. Um, but man, the other tracks—Asia, Black Cow, some of the, you know, they were just tracks that just left, you know, a mark on me in the same way they left on you. But you, you took it, you, you took it and ran with it. I just kind of listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, uh, let's go back and, and let's take a listen to uh, a track from that 2001 solo album that we talked about titled Comfort is So Rare. And uh, this is a very funky track called Bottle of Desperation. And this is from our guest today, Anthony Robostelli on Inside Music Cast.
2: Broadcasting throughout the remainder of these nighttime hours.
0: Know, your love for the Dan compelled you to write a book, The Steely Dan FAQ, that was published, I believe, earlier this year. And, um, yes, you know, for a band that sold as many records as they had, I think, what, over 40 million records worldwide... There really hasn't been all that much written about them over the years, and yet their lyrics are considered some of the finest and perhaps most cryptic you know, in the modern era of music. But, um, and certainly their music, you know, their sound and, and the way they went about creating it was also something unique in the world of music. But you bring a lot of the Steely Mystique to light with this book, and tell us what readers will expect when they put their eyes on this book.
1: Well, I really, you know, after all these years of being a fan, there was hardly anything out there. You know, there's Brian Sweet's book, um, a yeah. book on Asia by Don Bright. Uh, Don Brightup, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, a f- couple things here and there, but there just really wasn't much around. Yeah. And when I, you know, proposed it, it really was almost in a joking way that if they want to do an FAQ about Steely Dan, let me know. And within a couple of weeks, they got back. I was like, yes, we definitely want to do it. I was like, oh, what did I get myself into now? But what I found was, you know, over the years, even though people think they're reclusive and they don't, they, were interviewed quite a lot, and depending yeah. on their mood, they could be <laughs> forthright and really talk about their music and talk about influences and be very serious about it. I think it depended on who they were being interviewed by and just what they felt like doing that day if they felt like just busting chops and just making things up and you know just keeping the journalist on on his or her toes. Um, but there was a lot out there that they had done in the past speaking about their music, so I really want wanted to put together all that they had said and then some analysis of the music itself, plus just, you know, trying to really look into uh, their their childhoods and just try to touch on everything that I possibly could with the band and in relation to the people that played with them, because, you know, as most people know, after the first few albums, they became basically a studio band. And had so many phenomenal studio musicians grace their records that had such incredible careers to begin with that I wanted to also dedicate chapters to all these musicians that really made the sound for them. You know, everyone from Bernard Purdy and Jeff Picaro and Steve Gadd, you know, to guitarists like Larry Carlton, um, Chuck Rainey played bass on uh, almost, you know... He played bass on the most songs next to Walter Becker. So, (laughs) you know, that was a pretty big thing. And they had such phenomenal careers. And a lot of people don't usually know who they are. They might see a name on a record cover. Nowadays, they don't even see that, you know, with streaming and everything on an iPod nobody even sees who played on the yeah, record. So right. I wanted it to be like a place where if you want to know who played that solo or you want to know who played drums on that record, you could find out something about the musicians as well.
0: Yeah. You mentioned a couple of, well, a couple things here. You mentioned Don Bright up a second ago. Don is one of our correspondents here at Inside Music Cast. And uh, I thought he was, cause yeah. I see
1: from all the back and forth with everybody that, um, yeah, you guys seem to be on the same page, <laughs> and his book is uh, is ridiculous. Yeah,
0: it is. It's it's deep. It's really good. The other thing uh, too is you mentioned you know uh, Fagan and Becker's interviews uh, and whether or not they were in a good mood. Did you ever hear the the interview with Marion McPartland uh, within
1: with NPR with Fagan? Oh, the piano with, jazz. Yeah, the, with Fagan that was fanta- yeah. that was fantastic. That that really was, and it was such a unique way to play those songs yes. too. Uh, which was was just great, and I felt like their band, you know, they, the small rhythm section that they used for it, that they adapted the songs so well to that setting that it was just a such a cool way to hear those songs. Absolutely.
0: Well, your your book, The Steely Dan FAQ, it's it's really deep, and and. You know, it would certainly be entertaining for the casual fan, but this is a collection of Steely oriented gold that diehard fans will devour. And, you know, that said, tell us about the time and energy you spent working on this book. I, I can't imagine how long it took you because it's, it's a, it, there's a lot of information in this thing.
1: There is a lot of information. <laughs> you know, I, I spent uh, about a year on it. Um, okay. You know, not every single day. Sometimes I definitely needed a Steely Dan break, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was pretty deep into Steely Dan. You know, a big a big part of it is there's reading through everything that's already out there first to try to also put a different spin on it. I didn't want to just regurgitate what they had said in an interview. I wanted to add something to the conversation. So it was a lot of taking in and then figuring out, you know, how I wanted to put my own spin on it and, and tell stories that might not be known uh, by casual fans or even by diehard fans. Cause uh, there was a lot going on, you know, behind the scenes in the seventies and then throughout when they broke up, you know, through the eighties, with the uh, Rock and Soul review and the stuff Fagan was doing at the Lone Star Roadhouse and um, Becker moving to Hawaii and producing, like they, they were never not working, you know, they, they slowed down of course, but people just think they dropped off the face of the earth between (laughs) Gaucho and two against nature. And that's far from true. They were definitely keeping themselves occupied. Mm -hmm. I mean, Becker was producing jazz records where he was going in and producing two albums in a week. So he was yeah. definitely keeping himself busy. <laughs> well, you know, the the time it took,
0: you know, to write the book and research it is is one thing. And, and uh, as I was reading the book, I wondered about the additional time it must have taken to, you know, verify a lot of this information. And you, know, you know, we live in a world of fake news. And um, <laughs> this had to be an arduous task to make sure that, all, you know, all of your P's and Q's were, were there and, you know, I's were dotted and T's were crossed, that sort of thing.
1: It was because people are very quick – If there's any kind of error, I remember when it first went out, there are One or two things. There's one thing about an unreleased song that I had the wrong name for.
2: Okay. And
1: on like some Steely Dan blog or something, of course, there are like three people that jumped on that. And it's like, well, I'm sorry. And I made one mistake Uh in 400 pages. Um, (laughs) But it really is like going through everything and making sure um, that you just don't miss anything. The editors go through everything as well. Um, And we went back and forth with editing the book I would say, you know, three or four times where it would come back to me. I would make more changes. And I was constantly adding when I was supposed to be taking away. And and luckily, the editors there were really cool and let me get away with a lot because right up until the last, you know, edit where I was only supposed to be fixing any grammatical or spelling errors. I added two pages on a Walter Becker production that I had just found out about that I had missed somehow. And I just was like, can we please put this in? I wouldn't want to miss this because it's pretty important. Uh And they let me at a, at a point where really they shouldn't have added anything at all. (laughs) Um, You know, editing is, is often hard for me because I want to put everything out there that I know because that's what I would want to read. Right, And luckily, I didn't have to take much out. You know, there were definitely a few chapters right from the beginning that I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to do these chapters. I had a whole chapter I was working on, and I wrote probably a third of it just on people who have sampled Steely Dan. And the deeper I got into it, the crazier it got. It was becoming like this chapter that was going to be a 50 page chapter and I had to just cut it and, you know, hopefully I'll put it up on, on their website at some point. Um, just certain things were just getting to be too long. And that was a good example of a a chapter that just had to be cut. But for the most part, I was able to put everything in there that I wanted to. And I really took the pains to, to make sure everything that I put in was factual and that I had checked, you know, as many sources as I could to make sure that I'm not putting out right information that's not correct yeah. cuz especially in this day and age there's that's yeah. happening every single day.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, just out of curiosity and I just thought about this, but did uh do you know if Fagan or Becker ever if this book ever landed in their hands, did you, do you know if if that might have happened or if they had a chance an opportunity to to give you feedback on it?
1: I'm not you know what I I don't know if they ever got it. I okay. have a feeling they might have cuz Pete Vogel who wrote the foreword yeah. is very good friends yep. with with both of them, was very good friends with Walter and with Donald. And, right. you know, it was actually with Donald the night before That's right. Walter passed away. So I I have no idea. I Next time I see him, I'm going to ask him if he had ever, you know, passed a copy over to them. But, you know, what? he has always kept his relationship with them um, not about that. So, right. But I don't know. There, there's not a lot out there about them. So it would be pretty easy for if they're just searching Amazon for something I think Donald Fagan would stumble upon it if, he's ever, if he ever does a Steely Dan search.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you're, you're obviously astute when it comes to Steely Dan and their music, their history, but um, you had to learn quite a bit yourself from putting together such a finite collection of data on the band. And was there anything, you know, when researching or writing that stood out to you or surprised you when compiling this, uh, the Steely Dan FAQ?
1: You know, probably something that surprised me a little bit was the differing, the fact that people always thought they were. Perfectionists, which I, I think they were but also the fact that you know certain studio musicians I think it depended on the musician different musicians had different experiences some went in and felt like you know depending on the session it would be an easy something easy like Elliot Randall went in and nailed a solo boom Kid Charlemagne some of those tracks on Royal Scam once they found the right rhythm section they went in and they played it and it sounded great and they were done so mm. I think that the idea of them just being perfectionists yeah. is just for the sake of <laughs> getting this perfect thing right. isn't really right. I think they had in their head what they wanted it to sound like and if it sounded like that in one take, great. You know, Steve Gadd's drum part on Asia, that's the first take. You know, he went in, oh. he played it. Everybody ex- they expected to spend a few days on the song and he did it the first take out. So, that's I think that was something <laughs> that a lot of people think that they just always were about do as many as possible. Right. We're going to do a million takes. We're going to get this this right. But it was if it was a first take and it sounded great and they felt good about it, it was done. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's insane. Just that 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 you know the Asia drum track
1: in one take. It's. <laughs> blows me away <laughs> it, it's pretty r- ridiculous <laughs> yeah. and that's why i think it's funny when you hear that little stick click yeah that's something that probably wouldn't be there had they done more takes but uh, there was nothing no reason to do any more takes if that's if you're going for the right drum part yeah. i don't think you're going to get anything more right than that yeah. especially on you know it was eight pages long the chart and i think the other musicians that were playing they had to redo their parts because he was his playing was so ridiculous that they got thrown off mm-hmm. yeah well,
0: the, the book is The Steely Dan FAQ, and, and you can get that on Amazon, I know. Is there any other place you can pick that up?
1: Yeah, it's pretty much Barnes & Noble. Yeah. It's uh, Any place that sells books, luckily, you know, Hal Leonard's got a big – uh, they're they're big music publishers, so it's pretty yeah. much everywhere. Well, cool.
0: Hey, before we go, I do have a few more questions, and and I do want to dive into another project you recently released. Uh, that's also focused on Steely Dan, and that of course is the Steely Dan Sessions: uh, Interpretations of Unrealized Classics. It's uh that in you know you've created something Steely Dan fans have been longing to hear. That being You know, an album of songs that Fagan and Becker wrote, but were you know never released, and really only exist as like bootlegs of raw demos, and you know maybe they've been you know duped to a cassette, you know, and 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 copied a hundred times, and that's what you're hearing. But you gathered you know ten of these songs, and you brought life to them uh, through your own interpretation and arrangement, and they sound amazing. So. What was – my question is I guess is with this project, what was your overall goal? I mean were you trying to recreate the same version or the same vision that uh, Don and Walt had based on you know, those raw demos or did you approach them with a, a different vision based on how you interpreted the direction they might have gone had they finished them?
1: Well, you know what? Um, When I was finishing up the book, I decided I wanted to do something musical to go along with it. And Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, this is a good opportunity because there's so many great songs that they never did anything with. So I I, I approached it two different ways. With some of the earlier material, like the very early demos that they had done pre-Steely Dan and even a few during Katie Lyde period, some of those, I approached them in a bit of a different way and took some liberties with arrangement. And then even, you know, one song I wrote uh, an entire verse that didn't exist. A few songs I wrote middle sections that didn't exist okay, because I felt like they weren't, the songs weren't finished. Um, I felt like had they decided they were going to, record this song they would have fleshed it out better and you know there were some songs that were just verse and chorus and i knew they would want a instrumental middle section had they you know decided this was a song worthy of releasing right so with some of them i actually added musical material and uh even lyrical material material to one and then with some of the other songs like the second arrangement Uh um some of the more gaucho era ones the bear they had done you know, they were still demos, but they were definitely better quality than some of the earlier songs and yeah. had a groove and a feel. So, with those, I tried to take what I liked about their demos and keep and then discard some of the stuff I wasn't as fond of. You know, maybe it had a little bit more of a reggae backbeat that I wasn't really too into for that song. So, I tried to, you know, keep some of the things that I thought worked great for the song and then add some of my own. And, you know, being Steely Dan, especially later Steely Dan, horns are such an important part that yeah. horns had to be an important part to this project. So, um, I spent a lot of time arranging horns for the majority of the songs because I wanted it to sound like a Steely Dan record, but I also wanted it to, you know, have my own stamp on there as well, which I think is j- is going to happen no matter what you do, yeah. uh, no matter how much they've influenced me, my own way is going to come out uh, when I'm recording it as well. I'm definitely thinking of, you know, Steely Dan, what would they do with this? But I'm also just moving forward with what I would do, which often is Steely Danish. <laughs> right, right. Hey, I've got a question uh, that Brian
0: Pearson, one of our correspondents, uh, wanted to throw in here. And he, he said, um, how much of your time was spent on researching these tracks? And, and were there some others uh, that you thought about revisiting?
1: Yeah, You know what? I had known these songs for a long time and I had been listening to them more frequently while I was writing the book, you know, like I had the legends, uh, what is it? The, the, uh, the ones that double disc ca- that came out, the founders of Steely Day. And I got that uh-huh. as soon as, you know, I found that in the eighties in a bootleg store. And I had known all the stuff that was out there from the Gaucho sessions, but I really listened to it with a different ear when I was writing about it because I did a chapter on all these unreleased songs. So when I started listening to it with that ear, um, that's really when the idea came like, wow, these really are some great songs. And a lot of times people don't listen to bootlegs like that as frequently just because of the sound quality. Um, But I was listening to him so much writing that that's when I started picking songs. I definitely Mm -hmm. picked more than 10 and narrowed it down to these 10. So, you know, there might be a volume two if if the time comes and I decide. There's definitely more material out there that they wrote that didn't get released that would be fun to experiment with.
0: Yeah, you know i've I've picked uh I've picked three songs uh from the album, and I'll I'll, I'll throw the title out to you and, and and give me some backstory on the track, and then tell me how you approached the track from you know say an arrangement perspective. And the first one is a, a favorite of mine, and that's Mister Sam.
1: What a great song! It is, um, <laughs> but I I knew that was going to be one of the ones I wanted to do because yeah. it had a Katie Lyde feel to it reminds yeah. me a, a bit of Rose Darling. Yeah. Um, and it was different than the gaucho stuff or the really early stuff. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that was one I really wanted to do, um, you know, to me, when I first approached that their demo doesn't even have base on it, but, uh, I just liked the feel of it and that I wanted to keep um, with that whole Motowny type of four, four beats on the snare drum. So that was where it all started. Um, but it took a little while to figure out how I wanted the groove to fit because in their demo version, it just sticks with that and it becomes a little monotonous. Uh-huh. So I came up with the idea of switching from that to like a half-time funk groove and going back and forth. Yeah. And then after the second chorus, that one was when I was like, this needs an extended guitar solo section this is just screaming for it so that for that song i wrote a whole you know a whole section for the solo with different chords than the rest of the song to just basically take it in a little bit of an asia direction where here's a whole new section for someone to blow over before we come back into the you know proper song um and that that was a lot of fun to do because it was it felt like you know writing with them like oh okay we need a middle section oh okay I'll write this now yeah um and that that one was a lot of fun and and really one of my favorite songs on the record well you know since we're both
0: on the same page with Mr Sam uh, I think our, our appreciation for that track is is pretty mutual let's pause for a second and uh, let's take a listen this is Mr Sam from Anthony Robostelli from the album The Steely Dan Sessions Interpretations of Unrealized Classics on Inside Music Cast. Um, Another track is this one kind of has a Black Friday feel to it, and that's Let George Do It.
1: It definitely does. I was completely (laughs) thinking Black Friday. Uh Um, you know, their demo has the shuffle, uh, but I really wanted to go more for Black Friday meets Babylon Sisters, so I really wanted the really the the purdy shuffle of Babylon Sisters, but Mm -hmm. with the oomph of Black Friday, okay. Um And it fell together very easily just because of the nature of the song that it was uh, just fun to just dig into that, you know, swampy groove and then just have like ripping guitar going throughout. And then the other
0: track that I wanted to mention, and you mentioned it a moment ago, is the second arrangement. And this one, I think, amongst, you know, at least for me anyway, that that one seems to be one of the more prevalent uh, you know, bootlegs that are out there. I think a lot of people know this one uh from you know I know I think there's a YouTube video floating around of it uh with, with the track itself. And that one I think had been pretty produced by Steely Dan, right? I I think what we're hearing is is just a uh Is just, you know, probably a a several generation duplication.
1: Yes. And, you know, they had gotten pretty far in that. And then, unfortunately, it it was their favorite song that was planned to be on Gaucho. And then the engineer came in and erased three quarters of the song, the the master tape. (laughs) Right, right. And, you know, it was a pretty devastating moment I that... You know, Gary Katz just left the session. Like It it was pretty bad. And they had gotten pretty far on it. The thing that I always found interesting was they did try to re-record it, and they brought in the same rhythm section, but with a different drummer. They had used Ed Green originally, who's a real funky groove player, and then brought in Steve Gadd, who can play funky, but... Such different drummers. I'd, I always thought it was odd if they wanted to try to recreate what had been wiped, why they didn't bring in the same drummer. Maybe, yeah. maybe it was scheduling, but that didn't seem to be enough for them. But they never really went back to it. Uh, their version uh, is pretty finished. They, so there's background vocals, You know, no horns, or um, didn't seem like there was a finished Donald Fagan vocal. But it, that one was pretty much had the feel. I guess the thing that I strayed from was it had a little bit more of a, a reggae ish upbeat thing happening right. behind it. And I went for a little bit like of a slicker funk thing with the rhythm section. Um, just because I, I just I felt it that way more so than the reggae thing. And then, of course, you know, added the horns, added more backing vocals. And, uh, but that that song is, I could see why they liked it so much. Yeah. Uh, and I'm honestly glad they didn't put it on the record because it gave me a chance to. <laughs> I was curious, did
0: you have any hurdles to jump from a legal perspective in order to reproduce these songs and to release them?
1: S- surprisingly, it was pretty easy. You know, there are companies out there, if you're going to do a cover. Yeah version you get in touch with them they get in touch with the publishers right. the one thing that i was concerned about being that they had never been released was had they ever been published you know because it's it's very possible that they wrote these songs they demoed them and you know they never were you know legally Published, but they they were, and it was pretty easy for them to get the clearance and and just move forward. And I know a lot of people have asked that. I think because they think of cover versions the way they think of samples. Yeah, you need yeah. to go directly to the artist, mm-hmm. and it costs a lot of money. And um, with cover versions, as long as it's published, uh, you could go there and basically, you know, pay royalties. To do your own version of the song, I see.
0: yeah, right, right. Hey, you know,
1: from a production
0: standpoint, I'll admit that the first thing that stood out to me was was that they they sound analog. It really does sound like an analog recording, and I wondered how you recorded it. You know, it's it's very warm, well balanced, it's clean, and and you know, well is you know as we all know, you know, Fagin and, and Becker, as we mentioned a minute ago, are kind of labeled as per- perfectionists, but their albums were generally you know beautifully engineered, and with as much effort as you know you poured into developing. You know these rare gems. I'm, I'm assuming maybe in honor of Donald and Walt, you toiled over the sound of these songs. Is that is
1: that true? I, I definitely did. I was definitely a being with some of my favorite Steely Dan tracks to, yeah. you know, both both old and new. Because I do love the uh, Keith Carlock's drum sound on Everything Must Go, yeah. which was all recorded to tape. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a lot of a bing and I have a vintage MCI analog console in my studio. So oh, nice. that definitely helps that everything's going through there. Um, but yeah, I definitely wanted it. I wanted it to sound more like an older Steely Dan record, not like a modern Steely Dan record. I didn't want it to be yeah, like a two yeah. against nature. I wanted it to be more like an Asia or a Royal scam.
0: Oh, yeah. And, and considering the vintage of those songs, you know, they wouldn't have sounded the same as, as Two Against Nature or, uh, you know, I mean, that, that era of stuff. So I, I think, you know, I appreciate what you did. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> OK, I've got one more question for you and uh, regarding, regarding the album. And uh, tell me about the personnel involved with this record. I mean, how many players did you incorporate and tell me about the recording process and and how long did it take you to uh, to record, mix and master this project?
1: I did the whole thing uh, in six months. Basically, I started right around Christmas, and I was done by June. You know, I tried to give myself a deadline. Initially, I was shooting for four months, but it went to six. I ended up playing the majority of the instruments myself. Um, I brought in a horn section, of course, You know, a trumpet player, a trombone player, uh, a tenor player, and a friend of mine that does alto did some barry, some flute. Uh, I brought in two guitarists to do some solos. Uh, I covered a few solos, but you know I, there were definitely spots where I wanted someone to really rip. So I brought in uh, a couple guys, John Kaban and Masa Shimizu, who came in and did solos. Uh, I brought in the backing vocalist that hooked up the Gloria Gaynor gig, Danny G. She came in and uh, did vocals. And my daughter, who is just turned nine, she was eight at the time, she's been a drummer since she was four, I got her a drum kit. Um, So she had her debut and she played percussion, you know, hand claps. She did uh, wind chimes, tambourine. And for one tune in particular, I had her come in and and switch the Leslie on the B3 because there was a spot where I wanted to be two hands on the B3, but I needed to go from slow to fast. So I even gave her the Leslie switcher credit. So it was fun having her play on the stuff. And she's a great drummer and she did a really good job with the percussion. Um, And pretty much everything else I covered myself. That's so cool.
0: Well, if you're a Steely Dan fan, you've got to hear this. It's called The Steely Dan Sessions, Interpretations of Unrealized Classics. And it's from our guest today, Anthony Robustelli. And you can find that, again, at Amazon. And uh, where else? Where else can they get it?
1: CD Baby. uh, They can pick up a copy on my website. Uh, It's on iTunes, streaming on Spotify. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but go out and buy it it support the artist <laughs> we, we, we encourage that so um, we do we do well Anthony thanks so much for your time this, this was a great chat I really enjoyed it
1: I did too thanks so much for having me Rick
0: yeah take care and we'll we'll, uh, we'll keep up with you we'll, we'll touch base in the future and see what else is going on sounds good alright take care thanks again bye 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 special thanks to Anthony Robostelli for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast we'd also like to thank our correspondents Brian Pearson Kim Riley and Scott Gross, Mikhail Ingström, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, Inka Oyelese, and Arnaud Legere for their support and content development. Inside MusicCast is powered by Earshot Audio Post and Cabello Associates. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside MusicCast. I
2: carry the bra for pay.